Hi there, I'm Guy Kilty. Welcome to another episode of Creative Forces. This episode's interviewee is the DJ, journalist and author Dave Haslam. After setting up his own fanzine, Debris, in the early 80s, Dave DJed over 450 times at Manchester's legendary Hacienda Club before going on to gig at festivals and club nights all around the world and play alongside bands like the Stone Roses and New Order along the way. As a writer, he's had a really successful career too. He's now just published his fifth book, Sonic Youth Slept on My Floor, Music, Manchester and More, a really great memoir of his life and career. Now, I first met Dave about 15 years ago alongside my friend Ty, who very kindly did all the brilliant artwork for the Creative Forces podcast. Uh, we did Dave's website, so it's a real pleasure to interview him all these years later. In this interview, Dave explains why sharing has been the main theme of the various things he's done over the years, why he loves weirdos, and why he's just recently formed his own band. I'm expecting this to be good. Yeah, yeah, I know. I feel under pressure, I must admit, in this. As someone who interviews lots of people in your day-to-day -day life, it is a little bit... I've got to, I know, I've, I've been very conscious coming into this that my questions have got to be good. Because there are parts of the book where I, I, I give advice, kind of, about things that I've learned interviewing people. So, obviously, you've picked up on all that. <laughs> yeah. But also, it's difficult for me because... I am um, normally I'm on the other s I'm on your side. Yes, and I'm asking the questions, and I feel like I can. The agenda's mine, and I'll take it the way I want to take it. Now I am the victim, <laughs> so neither of us are in a comfort zone. No, <laughs> it's quite a different feeling, isn't it, being on the other side? So well, I'm, as I'm discovering. Yes, yeah. yes. All right. Well, I wanted to start by as I was reading the book, I picked out a couple of a couple of lines that have jumped out at me that really seem to sum up a lot of what you're about and and the kind of journey and or the the things that you've done over the years um one was that uh yeah about djing and also about debris so it was yeah. djing is not about power it's about sharing debris was the same sharing connecting you might want to play a record your audience would ordinarily be resistant to but if you find a context for it play it at the right time in among more familiar material it might work similarly i always hoped would could introduce people to something new I was prepared to put myself on the line that seemed to me to be a sort of strand throughout the whole thing that what you were really interested in or what you've shown yourself to be interested in is sharing and being part of something and sharing that with other people yeah that I mean that, that that's definitely right and uh, obviously uh, over the years I've thought about connections between DJing and writing yeah because in 83 84 I was DJing and writing. I mean, obviously kind of on a slightly different level to how I was now, but I was serving an apprenticeship, doing a fanzine, DJing in little clubs. And um, yeah, they, they are, I, I've kind of worked out after the, <laughs> after the fact in a way that sharing is, is an important part of that. And what it is is sharing my enthusiasm, mm. you know, because I'm still a fanboy <laughs> for lots of things, you know, and, uh, and, and that's something that I wanted to get across in the book that, I wanted to, in a way, pay homage to a lot of the things that have inspired me um, as a, a, a fan who, you know, who, who now is a participant in that culture. And um, so, yeah, I think it's a lot, that idea. And also, I think the two things that are connected between my DJing and writing is that sense of being a bit eclectic. Hmm. So my DJing career has never been about a particular genre or you know heaven forbid jumping on any particular bandwagon or indeed kind of 
you know, creating anything specific. It's always been a, a eclectic. And, and similarly with, you know, right going back to the fanzine, it was like, you know, one minute I was writing about, you know, George Orwell, the next minute I was writing about Malcolm X and Sonic Youth and then New Order and then interviewing, uh, you know, interviewed the woman who ran the laundrette in Moss Side, mm. uh, an old barber who cut Mac Busby's hair in <laughs> 1944 on board a troop ship mm. and all that kind of stuff. But that, that was just because I was interested in it. Where do you think that desire to share stuff then? And to share, you know, you had that enthusiasm, but why do you think you felt the, the need to, or the, the desire to share it? Well, I think people do that all the time. You know, like uh, all the time people, uh, e even before um, social media, where people, where the word share was kind of there in big letters, will mm. you share this, will you share that? I, I remember that culture going way back where you would say, you know, have you heard the new Prefab Sprout album? Or... Have you heard of this um, band or this writer? And also that uh, attempt to kind of access ar arty films, say, mm. you know, which I talk about in the book, desperately trying to see Eraserhead. Yeah. So, so there was a kind of word of mouth, which was really about people saying, this is great. And the reason for it was that, that there was a, a big mainstream which kind of, some of it was okay, you know, Top of the Pops would be kind of three or four good things every week if you were lucky. Um, you know, Radio 1 had some decent DJs on, but basically you became aware that there was a whole load of other stuff which wasn't obvious, so you had to share that with people, you know, and, and, and spread the, w spread the word. Um, and uh, just because I think, well, I mean, I, I'm a curious kind of, you know, I'm a person who's kind of curious about things, and I, I guess I've always been surrounded by people who were similar to that, and we were just like, "Have you seen this? Have you heard that?" Mm. You took but it a stage further, I guess, though, didn't you? Not just talking about it, but actually yeah, creating but a publication and putting it out there. Yeah, but I think just take. I mean, I think that's what what a lot of people who end up in any kind of creative world they're just, you know, taking things a stage further. So mm. you know, if you're a professional photographer, like. Kevin Cummins, and probably you start off wanting just to take pictures of, of bands who are knocking around at, you know, in the local clubs and venues you're going to, and you end up, you know, being known for it. Mm. And um, so, you know, I guess that's kind of how I feel about what I've done. You touched on a bit there as well. Another line that kind of came out is, I was fascinated by the idea of what was off the radar. I mean, why do you think that was such a big thing for you, being interested in stuff that wasn't the mainstream? Ooh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know why some people, because some people aren't, are they? Some people are like... Almost by definition, most people are, aren't they? So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why That's Why true. do you think you were not? By most definition. <laughs> why was I a weirdo? <laughs> that <laughs> wasn't the... Natural what? born weirdo. <laughs> that wasn't the wording I was getting no, but at. But I, 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 I love weirdos. Yeah. And, and the thing is that, uh, you know, like when you read the book, you realise that a lot of the things that I... W I was intrigued by or even involved with could have on one level or not been seen as being weird. Um, you know, when, when house music started, it was kind of, you know, bleepy, weird music with mm. no chorus and sometimes, well, no vocals, no guitars. That's weird. Uh, you know, and, and 10 years on, by the end of the 1990s, everyone was kind of sick of house music. But, you know, it, 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 that's, that, you know, the avant-garde becomes the mainstream. Um, but so that means that occasionally the weirdos win, 
you know and so um yeah so <laughs> what did you yeah so <laughs> i don't know i think um it seems like it was like a conscious thing rather than it being a subconscious thing it was like a you know a, from, from reading the book it's you wanted to be involved or get involved with stuff that wasn't the mainstream yeah may uh, i don't know what i don't really know why that was i think it was because the mainstream when i was growing up in the 70s um you know you you have you do have those sort of symbolic moments for example 1977 this isn't in the book but that moment when it was the queen's jubilee and 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 also you know the sex pistols 76 wasn't it yeah mm. and 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 so you had that kind of weird juxtaposition of on the one hand flag waving royalty and on the other hand god save the queen starring the sex pistols and so uh those sort of symbolic moments uh, were things that kind of woke me up to other stuff. Um, you know, and also <laughs> talk in the book about, you know, being, seeing flamboyantly or weirdly dressed people in the street and just <laughs> following them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I don't know why, I don't, I, I don't know why, why I did. May, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I was intrigued and curious and, and, uh, and uh, you know, some people are into kind. Of, when they say they're into adventure, they mean you know, I don't know, climbing the Alps blindfold. <laughs> Where my my idea of adventure was kind of yeah, just adventuring in ideas mm. and culture and um, and uh, I loved it. I mean, I think if you were to go deeper, I guess you would you could say that. By and large, people who are interested in things off the radar are maybe people who somewhere deep down are a bit unsettled and who are looking for things that make more sense than is the stuff that is right there in your face. Maybe. Would, would you consider yourself a person like that or were a person like that in sort of your teenage years or um, those formative years, if you like? Well... One of the uh, and the epigraph to the book, um, one of the epigraphs of the book is uh, a line from um, a song by Pete Shelley mm. of the Buzzcocks: uh, "Be normal, be unusual." Mm. And <laughs> I actually don't know if I am unusual or if I'm normal. Mm -hmm. So that idea that you know that deep down there's some unsettled part of me i don't know if that is something that me and just a few other people might feel <laughs> or whether actually lots of people are but mm. lots of people are kind of you know never have the desire or the chance or the confidence or the stupidity to kind of try and break out of that um and i i kind of do feel both normal and unusual you know and and uh, and, and the two things aren't maybe aren't mutually exclusive i don't know mm. but uh, you know it's it's kind of uh i think one of the things that i learned writing a book was not to tr not to um uh dot every i and cross every t i mean obviously literally i have because it's <laughs> extremely <laughs> well edited book, yeah. and people are employed yeah. to, to make sure i have done that yeah. but on a metaphorical level mm. 
the idea I, I, I thought I don't I, I can't spell everything out because I don't really know you know there's things in the book like there's a there's a stuff about um, my uh, a relationship of a kind with Tracy Thorne mm. and one of the, and the editor in the early part of the writing process said well it's a bit kind of unclear that and I'm like, well, it's unclear to me. It mm. was unclear to me then. It's unclear to me now. It's probably unclear to Tracy. <laughs> and it's th and it's like 35 years ago, <laughs> heaven forbid. And it doesn't, for me, I didn't feel a need at that point or any other point to think, you know, here are the five bullet point reasons why this relationship happened and what mm. it meant. Point one, point two. My head doesn't, even though I'm a very intelligent person, <laughs> My head, my brain doesn't work like that. No, and and I kind of thought, do can people's motivations and their life and their mistakes and their feelings be reduced down to to five bullet points at every point in their life? And I don't think, in my case, like I say, I don't know if I'm normal or unusual, but in my case, no. In my case, there's lots of stuff that's happened to me that, um, I, you know, I can't come up with a logical watertight explanation but all I can do is kind of be honest in the book about mm. uh, how they felt at the time and 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 um, just put it on down on the paper mm. um, I was interested as well by the title because obviously reading the book and knowing your history you've you've crossed paths with you know all sorts of people from you know big big names from the world of music and everything else so why David Byrne Morrissey, exactly. Nah, Rogers. Let's mention them. <laughs> All guys. right, let's mention them. Sorry. So, why Sonic Youth? Um, why choose that story in particular and that band as the name of their book? Yeah, well, that, yeah. I mean, there could have been other. Yeah, I guess could have. Um, Nile Rogers ate my sushi. <laughs> yeah, which he also did. Morrissey uh, drank your tea. Yeah, uh, cooking cauliflower cheese for Morrissey. And other stories. Um, well, one. I think. Um, uh to me it, it i like the title because it wasn't um manchester oriented and i didn't want the book's appeal um to be limited to an audience who are interested in manchester music because that audience will absolutely love the book mm. but also so will other people so i didn't want to be in that kind of pigeonhole but also, I, I kind of felt it was quite abstract, really, mm. um, because although Sonic Youth are a kind of I or were an iconic band, and you know had great influence on Nirvana, etc. Um, I think there will be people who actually Sonic Youth just sounds like uh, some kind of craze or mm. trend or abstract idea, you know. We are the Sonic Youth, like we are the mobs or mm. something. Hmm. Um, and thirdly, <laughs> thereby <laughs> undermining my whole point about bullet points. <laughs> yeah. Third, <laughs> this is the third of five. Third, third <laughs> of three, I think, <laughs> unless I think of another one halfway through the next sentence. Yep. Um, you've put me off now. <laughs> uh, no, also, what, what the, the point of that title is that a lot of the stuff that I write about is about me um, 
being around things or involved in things uh, in their early years. And that absolutely fascinates me. And um, so the idea of, I mean, I am one of those people that loves that, loves seeing bands in small venues, you know, hearing DJs and, and or, or, or rumours of films or ideas that are bubbling under the surface. All that fascinates me. And so the Sonic Youth thing is the idea that, that actually it still happens all the time, doesn't it? People get into things and uh, at the, in the very beginnings it's kind of quite chaotic and mundane and it's just you're in a band and you need to sleep on somebody's floor because mm. you can't afford a hotel and lots of bands do that and and you know th and, and lots of ideas start off like that and for me that was the that's often the most interesting part of the story but it's certainly the, the kinds of stories i write about a lot in the book so the fact that it, it's almost like a what happened next as soon mm. as kind of sonic youth wake up in the morning and get in the van and drive to Holland, I stop being interested in yeah. that. Um, I mean, I don't, but, you know, in, in another way I do because it, it, it's just such an intense thing. And I don't think I went, like, uh, after they uh, after they kind of broke quite big, I don't think I went to see them, you know. And it wasn't because I didn't like them. It was just kind of I'd moved on, they'd moved on. Mm. I, you know, I, I couldn't. You know, and it just, I, I'd been through that intense thing with them. So it's also that idea, I think th the title's meant to get across that, that idea that throughout the book there are seeds being sown. Yeah. Yeah, that's very obvious in the book, isn't it? I mean, another example being the sort of Stone Roses gig with the, the Gallagher's at it. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. And it is actually, thinking back now to the book, it is very, and thinking back to the fanzine and what you just said about you know, the alternative eventually becomes the mainstream. Mm. That is something that you're really interested in, is the, the very beginnings of, of a new thing. Yeah, um, and also the fact that that can be kind of accidental, like you mentioned the Gallaghers, you know. Mm. So I, I need to raise, at that point, I need to raise money for the Anti-Clause 28, wh uh, which was a kind of um, homophobic piece of legislation that the government were putting through. And the Stone Roses played the gig. Um, and you know, it, it was only—it's only in the last few months that I've become aware that Liam Gallagher talks about that gig as the moment where he wanted to basically be like Ian Brown. Mm. Uh, and it's also the same night Noel Gallagher met one of the Inspiral Carpets and became part of the music industry. So it's a kind of—it's like an accidental mm. um, seed being sown. And I mean, another example is Laurent Garnier, who is, you know, a, a great DJ. And, and having spent a lot of time in Paris, I realize how influential he has been in the Paris scene, you know, for the last 25 years. Um, and he talks about walking into the Hacienda as, a, as like the pivotal moment of his life. Mm. You know, so if the Hacienda hadn't existed, everything that Laurent has done in his own career and in the Paris music scene might not have happened either. So it's kind of, um, it's, uh, what I don't know really is how you, if like me, you believe that culture is something that happens in small underground, undercapitalized cells of people, like-minded people getting together and, and 
bit weird and doing things a bit differently. Mm. Um, and that stuff will happen, you know. So Sonic Youth will become big. Uh, the Stone Roses will become, all that will happen. And, uh, you know, and the writers that I talk about in the films and Carol Morley, the filmmaker who's in the book in a very, very early on before she's had got any idea she's going to be a filmmaker. So mm. all those people, I believe that that's kind of how culture works best. And obviously there are other people who think that you kind of open big cultural emporia like opera houses and mm. arts, f big arts spaces and stuff. So, um, but for me, it's very much about that kind of grassroots and and those and those like-minded people. Mm. So, so I, in a way, I wanted to write about that. I wanted to really try and push that. Um, as an idea without it becoming kind of some kind of abstract thing. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you, you did cover other, it wasn't just about music with Debris, was it? You covered other stuff, but music's obviously been a huge part of, mm. you know, your life and, and what you've uh, documented and, and covered. Were you ever tempted to, or did you ever attempt to be in a band yourself? Uh, I was in, in a band at school for a bit, but it wasn't... Um, I have to say that I actually took to DJing really quickly. Um, it, I mean, it might sound weird to say as somebody who writes books and goes on radio and TV spouting opinions on stuff <laughs> and is a DJ, but I haven't got a huge ego. You know, in, in the sense, obviously, you know, I've got like you know, esteem issues that I like to kind of look after. But I think you can tell in the book that, that I mean, the book isn't written from the point, you know, like, I guess, you you know, I've not read any other DJ <laughs> memoirs, but <laughs> I know some of those characters and I've read their in interviews mm. and stuff, you know, and they blaze a trail through the world like some superheroes <laughs> and inventing this and, you know, inventing that and mm. being, you know, uh, ruling the world and um th you know which i think is probably bullshit <laughs> so uh well good luck to them if that's how they've uh, how they are mm. but in my my perception is you know and anyone who gets to a point where they're seen as being successful in what they do if they're really honest then you know they leave behind them a whole past full of influences and inspirations and mm. mistakes and all kinds um and also in terms of ego all the people who've opened doors for you and all the people who are, have inspired you or you're connected with mm. and um so that uh, you know I, I tried to one of the things that i was really adamant about when i sat down was that I, you know i, I would in fact, talk again. It's uh, Laurent Garnier. He met, he went. Uh, he became a member of the uh, Légion d'honneur in a big honor in mm. um, France, and he said that he felt like it was not just an honor for him to accept that award, but also on behalf of the collective history. Mm. And that's a, a phrase that I use a couple of times in the book, and that's how very much I kind of feel like I've written the book as being somebody who's part of a collective history rather than somebody who is some kind of, you know, uh, wayward 
genius who's <laughs> just done it all on his own. And yeah, because people are often repackaged, aren't they, when they become famous or successful they're repackaged as if nothing went before yeah. those days when they that day when they became famous almost yeah and and that yeah that that or they were born to be famous mm. and everyone else has, has has merely become a bit part player mm. in their huge rise to fame and fortune <laughs> yeah. whereas i'm not like that no partly yeah partly because it isn't true you know but also because you know it those all those people that I talk about in the book, um, you know, uh, uh, from you know Morrissey and Ma through to uh, Tracy and to you know Nara Rogers, David Byrne. Um, then me meeting them has really properly been inspirational. And mm. when I've been, you know, especially when I sat down with Nile Rogers, I was like. Uh, I was just in awe hmm. of him, you know, and I'm not surprised. And um, yeah, so so there isn't really any. wasn't really if I, if I'd taken a load of ego into that room to talk to Nile Rogers, it just it wouldn't have worked. Hmm. I, I, I was just there to f you know facilitate a, an hour and a half of him talking about his career and creativity and music. So. So I've kind of learned how to how to be at one remove, really. Mm. And that was what you mentioned the band at school. That wasn't really it didn't really happen, did it? Not? Or it wasn't really you didn't enjoy it as much, did no, you? No, I didn't enjoy. No, I didn't enjoy it because I don't. I don't. I'm not even sure that whether we were whether we were uh, we would be good or. Um, but then I left school, so it was kind of like it was just one of those things. Um, but. What was it like when you were at school? You know, were you encouraged in terms of music, or was it? And and your parents did they did they encourage you at all in that area? I think um, school. I think at school. I mean, I was I kind of read a lot of books, as you could probably tell. <laughs> <laughs> in I mean, both in real life and in reading my book, mm. I actually wanted to be. I mean, I wanted to be a writer, basically. You know, I wanted to be. Um, a kind of Jean-Paul Sartre type, uh, deep existential philosophical mm. writer, who you know could write several novels and and works of theory, which would sum up my <laughs> the human my condition. the human condition. <laughs> and I believed I could do that. <laughs> and um, I actually remember one summer holiday when the whole family went down to Devon or somewhere, and. Uh, you know, we were sort of playing on the beach and all that. I was about 14, 15 maybe. Mm -hmm. And I discovered a little secondhand bookshop in the town. And literally we would all arrive at the beach every morning, you know, uh, put all the whatever towels <laughs> down and et cetera. My mum would get the picnic out or whatever. And then and I'd just go to the secondhand bookshop and, and, and I'd buy, buy a Penguin modern classic novel and I'd walk back to the beach read it in a day uh in the shade and um and then the next day do the same <laughs> and that's like the, one of the best holidays i've ever had and were you encouraged in your sort of i wasn't discouraged yeah i mean i think that was the thing i mean i wasn't discouraged at all um i mean as I say in the book, my, my mother died when I was relatively young, 23. Mm. My dad is still alive. 
he has no idea what I've done in my life. I mean, he's been encouraging at every point, but he, he I don't think he really knows what a DJ is. Um, Do you mean, why is that? Just because he's just so... Well, he's sort of 86, yeah. you know what I mean? I it mean, just didn't touch his world. His, no, the only DJ who's touched his world is probably Jimmy Savile. <laughs> so it's probably just as well he's yeah. not really put much emotional investment into his son's sure. career. Yeah. But he, you know, he he's like like every other dad. You know, he wants he wants me to be happy. Mm. You know, and if you're happy doing what you're doing, then that's good. So, um, you know, which is a kind of encouragement. Mm. You know, I mean, it, it's not like, you know, he was uh, telling me how to run my life. But at the same time, in fact, he was telling me that he didn't want to run my life. Right. So actually, it's probably a better, even uh, even better bit of were you parental guidance. Were you happy with that approach? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, don't know. Did you find that? Um, did you find that sort of a good thing for you that he wasn't sort of trying to show you down certain routes? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, again, I don't know uh, what that would have been like if he had hmm. or, or or he hadn't. I mean, he got his own. I mean, you know, he got his own stuff going on, and and like I say, I think. Um, he, I mean, occasionally, I think he took a, a bit of interest in the fanzine, mm. um, and I can remember uh, him being aware in uh, this would have been early 1984 that um, I was going to see the Smiths and all that, and and uh, uh, occasionally he'd phone me up and said um, and would say things like. Um, Oh, I was reading The Guardian of the day and um, your friend Stephen Morrissey's in it. And I don't know if you've seen it. You want me to cut it out of the paper <laughs> and send it to you? He had this like idea that sort of my friend Morrissey, <laughs> your friend Morrissey's in the paper. <laughs> and luckily, he stopped saying that. So that was the time that it sort of did intersect with what he <laughs> saw. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yes, but I, you know, like I say, I think. Um, uh, I think that's you know that was that was perfect parenting for me mm. probably just you know do do your own thing um and I think he probably realized I don't know I mean I think he my, my, my I think there's a lot of stuff in my book which my dad won't have have a clue what I'm talking about and there's mm. other stuff that he will understand but he won't have known about me so it's kind of quite Do weird you, can you give an example you know, of this that? well my love life yeah <laughs> which I don't want to put anyone off reading the book but I did, there are one or two chapters about my love life but that's <laughs> and, and, and I think and there's uh, I mean he didn't know I had a gun pulled on me in the Hacienda yeah I don't think he knows about the one or two other death threats made against me so i think he'll be kind of quite shocked about that and um but <laughs> it so uh, you know this is book number five the mm. first four books were all you know um they, they, they kind of had m my stamp of a bit of personality on them but they weren't an autobiography as mm. you know they were kind of you know cultural history or mm. whatever so and he's read all them but that you know this one is different and i really did want it to be you know kind of honest you know and i don't think 
there's anyone in my life who won't read the book and say to me, I never knew that. Mm-hmm. You know. There'll be something that everyone will pick out and say. Yeah, you know I never that. knew that. I mean, even, you know, Catherine, my wife, was like, you know, kept sending me messages. She took it on holiday with a, one of the, a, a pre-publication version, and she was like, oh, I never knew that. <laughs> I never knew, why didn't you tell me that? <laughs> but, you know, that was really just, that wasn't because I'm a, I've am been a closed book all my life, you mm. know, but it's just because I decided that if I was going to write about my life, I had to write about my life. And so, you know, again, that's a kind of, I guess, a diff- maybe a different approach than some people would have taken. But, you know, writing about my love life, writing about my kids, partly because I felt like that was something that uh, just on a human level people would relate to. Hmm. I mean, again, most, I'm guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing that, a lot of people have gone through a period in their life when, for example, they've had a pretty bad love life. You know, people have gone through their life maybe either as kids or with problematic relationships with their parents. I mean, not that I did, but, you know, Mm. they're aware of kids and parent relationships, which I write about. Um, You know, and people have gone through bereavement. People have gone through a kind of midlife crisis, which I write about. So you don't need to know the chronology of Stone Roses albums Mm. or the inside-out story of the Hacienda to relate to those human parts Mm. of the story. And I kind of thought that was an important element in my life, all those things, Mm. you know, bereavement, kids. Well, yeah, you mentioned bereavement. You you know, you talk about your mum, you mentioned your mum, and you say in the book that you didn't really, or you couldn't really, come to terms with it at the time it was seemed i can't remember the exact wording but it was it was difficult you couldn't process it at the yeah. time i think is that something that you have been able to do in the the years since uh i don't know i mean I, probably in the last 10 years yes but um i mean given that it was 30 years ago or more then there was probably a long time when i hadn't but Again, how 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 are you meant to process that? I mean, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it, I mean, you know, I've kind of come to the conclusion that actually, my mother dying at twenty three, uh, it, it it could have been worse. I could have been three, mm. you know, or twelve or whatever. I could have been younger. Mm. Um, so I've kind of become. I've, I've kind of become grateful that that uh that i was 23 (laughs) and not three which kind of sounds weird but you know that's how that's one way that i've kind of processed it Mm. um and also i've realized that it's okay to uh carry around a little bit of um darkness or whatever that experience creates in your soul it's okay to carry that around and that in, in fact it's probably better to do that than to kind of forget mm. um so uh whatever pain it caused me then you know it doesn't cause me the same amount of pain now but but uh 
I'm not trying to get rid of it. I'm not. I don't need to get rid of it. Mm. It's like it's just part of who I am. And you grew up. Was it Mosley you grew up in? Yeah. Yeah. So what? Just I mean, you talk a bit about it in the book, don't you? But what was when you think back to what life's like now? When you compare, you know, being in Mosley then, what yeah. what are the sort of main memories of that time? Because you've got brother and sister as well. Yeah, you, I've got yeah. A brother. Yeah. Well, Mo- Mosley is a suburb in the south of Birmingham, and we. Uh, oh, this is. I keep saying things are weird, but they kind of are in a way. <laughs> uh, how life pans out. If you were to say what part of Manchester is most similar to Mosley, you would almost immediately pick West Didsbury. Yeah. Um, in that, uh, you know, you've kind of got similar kinds of uh, demographic, you know, Guardian reading type demographic. Mm. Uh, it, but also quite a lot of student or ex-student. My brother, who is from West Disbury, lived in Mosley as a student. So there we go. <laughs> there you go. And also, uh, in the Brexit vote, both those areas were in the top 10 most remain mm. areas in Britain. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it, it's one of those things that, I mean, you know, I mean, I've been in Manchester 38 years and I've lived in lots of places, but I've ended up in the place that is most similar to the place You've that I grew up You've moved to the, the Mosley of the North. Yeah, I mean, uh, so it's, uh, so yeah, so my, I mean, my I think, again, my abiding memory was I liked being in a place that where, I mean, in the 70s, Mosley had uh, uh, probably was the most what you might call alternative type area um, in in Birmingham in the sense there was a for example an alternative bookshop um, on 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 the high street you know and there you know you could buy uh, you know books about you know alternative psychiatry and revolution and all that kind of thing um you know and there would be stoned people wandering around and um but at the same time you know there were there was kind there was uh um what and what was then called battered wives homes which were you know uh places that where uh women who were suffering extreme domestic abuse could find sanctuary mm-hmm. so there was all kinds of things happening you know, in th- in that area, and the other thing about it was it was a kind of very short bus ride into the centre of town, again like West Didsbury. Mm. So, I think that 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 m- uh, mix of people, uh, I think that probably had a had a impact on me. Um, but both those places were kind of the furthest from a city centre I've lived. I mean, in the other places I've lived in Manchester, I've been much closer to town. So, um, I think I, I, I would—I was never going to be somebody who was going to live out in Cheshire or live in London. Hmm. In fact, so um, yeah. So there I was. Here I am. Was it your older sister that was into music too? She was. Yeah, I mean, she. My brother and my sister were. Uh, 
I mean, my parents were kind of into music. I think I'm not sure if I put in the book whether I decided to edit it out about my dad used to go and watch or listen to the symphony orchestra play and habitually would fall asleep during the first movement. Of I don't remember reading that. Whatever, you can tell that story yeah, now. whatever <laughs> symphony was happening. Because he was just like, he worked hard and it was probably, you know, and then he had the. What did he do? And looking now, he was a lawyer. He's a lawyer. And looking now at, 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 you know, what it's like to be a parent, mm. he's also got three kids. <laughs> so he's basically got a, you know, quite a difficult, or not a difficult job, but quite a, you know, a job which required a lot of thought and energy. And then he had his three children. <laughs> and so the only time he got to sit down, bless him, was sitting in the Birmingham Symphony Hall <laughs> to listen to Simon Rattle conducting. No one would talk to him. Yeah, nobody would talk to him, <laughs> and obviously, the, and and so he would fall asleep. And that doesn't mean he didn't like music. It was mm. just that <laughs> his experience of that was different, different <laughs> to me going to see Blondie in a punk club, yeah. which was a bit more <laughs> visceral. Yeah. And um, uh, but my my bit my, my elder sister, three years older than me. I mean, back then, youth clubs were a thing. Um, I mean, you know that. I think uh, I still meet a lot of people who, who, whose first experiences of music and youth culture generally was at a youth club. Mm. You know, where you meet other people of you in your little area, and you know, w and it was all very tribal. So every youth club had like a mod, you know, and every youth club had a kind of break dancer, <laughs> and and um, my sister's youth club. I went to a different one to her, of course, being a, a rebel. <laughs> uh, her youth club was like quite a lot of kind of slightly hippie, because they were slightly older than me, slightly hippie, mm. long-haired type um, fans of um, Bob Dylan and Neil Young and that kind of thing. Um, and so she would buy those kind of albums uh, and also, I talk about in the book about all, all the family all watching Top of the Pops every mm. week, which again, you know, be be normal, be unusual. That was not that was not a that, that lots of people did that, you know. And and I guess I wasn't the only person who you know remembers my dad kind of getting a little bit uptight about men looking like women during <laughs> the glam era. That was <laughs> kind of like. That was par for the course, yep. pretty much. So there was kind of, you know, there was a... And actually, I think now, compared to now, I think in the seven, late 70s, music uh, seemed more important. Whether it was or not, I don't know. But one of the reasons it seemed more important was was very little else happening, you know, in terms of uh, entertainment or mm. access to things. Um, you know, and uh, obviously it's a pretty obvious point to make, but you know, before computer games and and you know online entertainment, mm. then then you know music was a kind of doorway into the world, and you just want and I just wanted to run through it basically, and and so again, I think people of my generation, a couple of generations later than me, kind of pin all our hopes on music because without that, there wasn't much else, you know, maybe apart from football and dressing up, probably. Mm. 
by the way, you mentioned hair then, and I just remembered the story at the start of the book about you. Don't give away the book, or start of the book. Well, I won't give away the whole thing, but you did have an Art Garfunkel haircut. I don't if know, I remember yeah. rightly, and but you got rid of that, didn't you? Was yeah. that a sim? It feels like that was kind of a symbolic thing. Does it? Is is that how you see it? I don't know how long we've been talking, but I've already explained to you that I do not have five bullet point answers. <laughs> yeah. So I do try and work out the, what the what the meaning of the haircut was in in chapter one of the book. Yes, you do. And I, I, I kind of have various theories, uh, which uh, I, 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 I don't know if I, I need to kind of go through them all now, <laughs> but they don't necessarily add up to a theory. No. <laughs> but it seems like it was... Uh I can't imagine you with an Art Garfunkel haircut, first of all, but because I've only ever seen you with the short hair. Yeah, well, I had um, I had all my hair cut off in 1985, and the book starts then. Hmm. So, you know, I was 23. Um, I, I was there's a, there's a song by Dex's Midnight Runners off their first album, which is one of the great al- first albums ever um and it's called tell me when my light turns green and kevin Rowland, who is an absolute star um he should be king of britain and ireland <laughs> uh he in that song he writes about he sings about being 23 which was the age i was in 1985 and he talks about how he's yeah waiting for his light to turn green. He's mm. waiting for his life to begin. He's kind of full of angst and anger and confusion and all that. And and uh, although I don't write about that in the book, it was kind of behind everything that I was writing. Mm. Um, that I and and really the book starts with me realizing as Kevin did that your light doesn't turn green thanks to anyone else that actually you're the one that has to make it happen hmm. and so that's really why the book starts with me age 23 is because it's kind of that i'm kind of really deep into the revelation that it's about you know make your own life hmm. make your own culture um and it can be done you can if you knock on doors or if you believe in yourself or if you follow your own instinct um if you can maybe link up with the right people um then stuff can happen and and that kind of angst and anger and and confusion that you feel when you're 23 will either be articulated through what you do Mm. or will you know, somehow be ameliorated by what you do. Well, you mentioned that, don't you, you say in the book that around 1986, lots of things were sort of coming together for you, weren't they? So mm. there's the Hacienda and also NME. So yeah. it, it, is, does that feel like the, you know, the, that belief that if you make your own life, that this, then it was starting to come together at that time? Yeah, but the the, the thing I remember that, but I mean, you're right, 86 was kind of, uh, was a great year and I was only 24 and I kind of look back now and I think, wow, I, you know, I had, uh um it, it it actually all it began to fall into place quicker than it maybe could have done mm-hmm. and uh, um in the book i did feel like occasionally just stopping and kind of 
um, congratulating the young me <laughs> on somehow <laughs> making stuff happen. Because mm. it's, you know, it can't have been easy. I mean, it's hard for me now to absolutely get back into that mindset. But, you know, it, it wasn't easy. But, yeah, you're right. So in like 1986, I did the first, uh, my first uh, couple of features in NME and I had two nights a week at the Hacienda. So things were, you know, things were really going well. Uh, but for me, um, I, I wasn't thinking, when I say make your own life, make your own culture, mm. I wasn't thinking that there was, that that was part of a process and that, that I was on some kind of ladder to somewhere even better. Mm. Actually, all I felt at age 24 was this is what I want to do. Mm. And this is the life. It wasn't like one day I will be living the life I want. It's like this is the life, you know. And to be kind of invited to, you know, and, and as as you know, early in the book I talk about you know being obsessed with Joy Division, hmm. and then in in the nineteen eighty six to be invited hmm. to New Order's rehearsal rooms, where Jonathan Demi filmed a Perfect Kiss video and to spend the day sat with them listening to their new album and talking to them and then Peter Hook giving me a lift back into town in his amazing car. That is like, wh why would you want anything to be bigger than that? Why would you go home and think, oh, one day I will, hmm. you know, interview Bowie or something? It wasn't, ri it wasn't like that. It was just like, uh, just a massive thrill and buzz at the time even though again i won't spoil that chapter but there was a slight twist about i was about to ask you about that but i'll save end, that i'll save that at the end of that interview do you want to talk about that or should we no, leave that no, let's, let's leave that, that one yeah let's leave that things one didn't go exactly to plan did they didn't go exactly to plan but <laughs> my point is that you know and again with the hacienda at that point there were probably 500 people coming on a thursday and 800 on a saturday um and in the context of what it would be like three years later, you know, they, that wasn't amazing numbers. Mm -hmm. um, but, and I wasn't being paid much and, you know, it didn't have, it didn't, it, you know, it didn't add up to that much on the face of it. Mm. But um, again, it was all I wanted to do. Uh, oh, well, you know, age 24, somebody says, I'll give you 40 pounds to play your favorite music very loudly mm. for five hours in a club <laughs> owned by New Order. <laughs> You're going to say yes. <laughs> but not everyone would say yes, would they? Because, uh, you know, a lot of people, probably most people, take the sort of safer well, salary yes? option. You know, they, that, but well, that's what people do. Why saying yes? I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. I, yeah. I... I uh, I started being more, um, yeah, I've been starting being more proactive about this because I've started saying in my head, why not? That's now like my norm, that's like now my default answer. Hmm. So when someone says, will you come and do this? I'm like, my instead of thinking, oh, I can't be bothered, <laughs> or that sounds like hard work, or how much, hmm. I'm like, why not? Hmm. And then I, ar I, I argue against doing it instead of having to argue I for see. doing it. Is that a recent thing or is that something? That's well, it's only recently that I've, um, it's become conscious, but I think it was probably a bit, uh, it, I was probably like that younger, but in a much more of an unconscious way. Mm. And it's just instinctive. 
um, you know, because I, I talk about, uh, I sort of have a bit of fun at Tony Wilson's expense when I talk about the notion that the word he always used to use, which was praxis, mm. which he loved using in front <laughs> of audiences who didn't know what it meant. Yeah. Ninety-nine percent of the population. Of course, me with my English degree, <laughs> I, I knew what was. I knew what was up. <laughs> um, but it's that idea that you kind of do something and you and you and you find the logical reasons for doing it and mm. the rationale afterwards. And um, although I have, I, I sort of take the Mickey out of him for, for that in the book. At the same time, actually, that's almost what the book is: mm. is is me either trying or not trying or failing to find reasons for doing all this stuff which was pretty instinctive at the time mm. and speaking of that i mean you i find it really interesting the whole sort of becoming a dj at the hacienda and and at other places at the time when you started out wasn't it because it wasn't necessarily you know we think of being a dj now as this big thing and it you know it's a it's looked at in a very different way than it was in the early 80s and so it's really interesting the way that that developed in the time mm. you were doing it so did it, I get the impression from reading the book that you kind of sort of fell into it in a way, in the sense that you were asked to do it and said yes, but using your theory, yeah, using your uh, you know rationale, um, but then it, it kind of snowballed from there and then became something else while you were doing it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you if you, I mean, that's a, it's obviously a very str big strand of the book is that development of my DJing career and I'm still feel like the word career needs to be in inverted commas now <laughs> um, but that's partly the point like in 1986 it wasn't a career mm. I think in, in fact I think in the book I say more 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 young men in Manchester were barbers than DJs mm. in 1986 <laughs> and uh, probably wanted to be barbers but I mean the DJs had a certain kind of cachet on some scenes northern soul funk Certainly on the black scene, DJs mm. uh, and and selectors, as they were called, in the on the reggae scene, they did have um, quite a profile, and it was seen as being something to aspire to be. Um, but uh, generally, in the, in the population, it wasn't. And um, yeah, so I kind of fell into it. Mm. But and as you say. Uh, I think one of the reasons why me writing about DJing is actually quite interesting to anyone interested in DJing is because I, I just happen to be of a generation where I think we, when I say we, I mean Mike Pickering, Graham Park, Paul Oakenfold, all that generation. We actually did start DJing at a time when it was quite low profile and, you know, you were only really doing it as a hobby. Mm. But, our uh, our time in the industry coincides with the time when it suddenly becomes mm. important and and high profile uh and the culture changes and you know djing becomes something lots of kids want to aspire to you know and you know by the 19 end of the 1990s people are kind of burning their fender guitars mm. and buying turntables yeah you know, and it was like in the space of 10 years. So it was, but you know, that uh, putting putting myself in a situation where, in, as we talk about the Hacienda in mm. that period, putting myself in a situation that 
becomes a revolutionary moment in popular music it's kind of quite funny yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean because one thing I, I always say is that if i if we'd known in 1987 say that what we were doing over the next year would redefine manchester manchester music dance music and have all that all mm. that whatever it has happened since that effect I wouldn't have known what to play. <laughs> I'd have felt totally yeah. flummoxed too and intimidated. Yeah. Too much pressure. Yeah. And uh, and so it was lovely. And I write about it, actually, that the moments before it became, someone pointed to us and said, you are making history. That was actually the worst thing that happened mm. in one way. You know, it and it kind of came at the sort of, it kind of came by the middle of 89, end of 89 where the hacienda got really big you know there were kind of camera crews coming in there mm. happy mondays and stone roses who were connected to the scene were both on top of the pops by the end of 87 sorry 89 so by so in that period from the kind of end of 87 to the end of 89 that two-year period uh the trajectory was huge mm. but actually it was something was lost in a way for me um when it when someone pointed the finger said, you're making history because then you you became more self-conscious about and did it almost become more doing. mainstream then uh it, it just became different hmm. you know i mean obviously it, w it was a buzz that there were camera crews there and it was a buzz that you know people in london were taking what we were doing seriously and and uh it was easy to dj because there was thousands of people wanting to get in hmm. um and you know you weren't like I was in the early days, trying to nurture a crowd and build a crowd. Um, but I try and be really honest about that, and I just try, you know, and, and so that sense that you're that I'm kind of in control but not in control mm. of whatever was happening, of that making history process is how I feel now. I mean, looking back, I, it wasn't about me, but at the same time, if I hadn't been there, mm. then it might have been different, mm. you know, and, and, and there was that, I could say control, but not in control. Mm. And none of us were in control. That was the great thing about it because it was so unpredictable. Um, you know, uh, again, uh, uh, I think Tony was the only one who had like the big perspective mm. on what we were doing. And he kind of wanted sort of us. Grandiose vision. Here, yeah, he, want, he was the one who had the vision mm. and he was the one who, who wanted to shape it so that it became mm. a revolution. But at the same time, he didn't tell me or Pickering what to play. Mm. And he never would have done, you know. It's interesting, isn't it, looking back on t periods like that. It often, when you when it's documented or looked back on, it seems like there are three or four people sort of pulling the strings. Mm. But more often than not, as you say in the book, it's actually not like that at all. It's just lots of different people trying to do lots of things and suddenly... I think lots of people lo trying to do lo lots some of things. Thing, happen. Yeah, lots of things that were both quality and things that were different. So I think uh, everyone involved with the Hacienda, wh whatever their contribution, whatever they were doing, they had a, a certain kind of ethos which did come down from the management, which was to be different, mm. but also just to take it, on one level, take it seriously. So, mm. or, okay, so, you know, you, uh, there's hedonism and there's fun and there's entertainment and there's the buzz, but at the same time, it's serious because you can change the world. Mm. You know, and Tony was obviously, he was kind of, he had a kind of hippie side to him, 
and he had a punk side to him. And it, but both those sides were about knocking the world off its axis through music culture, mm. which is what drove youth culture. So, um, you know, so he was kind of part Richard Branson, part Malcolm McLaren, <laughs> part kind of Allen Ginsberg, mm. you know. And so that ethos fed everything that we did. But so in a sense, the wor there were kind of one or two people who were like him, who were, who were pivotal. Mm. But at the same time, he didn't know what levers to press. He mm. just pressed them all, <laughs> basically. Yeah. He was just like, I'm going to press, you know, and I can remember all, he tried everything and yeah. anything. Yeah. And, um, but it, at the same time, like, you know, I mean, equally important to Tony was the audience. So I talk about that in the book, you mm. know. This is part of my why, why I've I've and why I have to, you know, take that egotistical side of me or whatever that everyone has and try and bury it a little because when you're a DJ you have to because mm. it's a, it's the audience is so powerful mm. and um, you know as as you said at the beginning it's about sharing connecting it's connecting with the audience. So a DJ without an audience is just, you know, some man or woman with a box of records, mm. you know. And so at the Hacienda, we we were able to attract and nurture really good audiences that weren't like the audiences in other clubs. Mm. And, uh, I mean, I talk a little bit about that in, in the book because, you know, you felt then, and I now I still feel a kind of responsibility to that audience mm. you know it sounds weird but even now when i know i've got a gig coming up i feel like well people are investing time and money and hopes in me giving them an amazing night out mm. playing exactly the right music in the right order to really make them feel something and that's a responsibility. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean about taking things seriously. And so my responsibility is to, to deliver that. But in return, they give me loyalty and mm. they give me, and they, they put themselves, they trust me. They put themselves in, in that situation where I can do that and they can connect and they're open-minded. Yeah, you mentioned the book, you, you need a mix of psychology and anthropology to be a good <laughs> DJ. Is that... It's a it's an interesting mix of skills that you have yeah. to have. Yeah, and you have to absolutely love the music. Mm. You have to love the music. But yeah, that's something that um you know, I've uh, the a DJ's relationship with the audience I love. I I love trying to think about it. I haven't completely cracked it yet, but one of one of the things that I do believe is that the you know yeah the audience is hugely important and you have to nurture and find uh your audience you know and um and again that probably goes to that I that idea that I have of that there are people out there that you are that you can connect with mm. and but there are others that you maybe you can't you know you just mm. have to uh accept I mean again in the in the book I say you know you can't as a, as a DJ, you realise that not everyone's going to like what you do, hmm. and 
I kind of, <laughs> I sort of almost by extension say, well, that's kind of life. Mm, yeah. If not everyone likes you, yeah. well, move on. Yeah. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. You know, so, and and when you're a DJ, you really learn that, you know, not, not, that, that, um, and the, I mean, I think the other thing, I mean, in the book, as you know, near the end, it kind of gets a bit deeper. Mm. And one of the things that I realize about DJing is that, uh, it can sometimes be too much of a buzz in a way for me kind of knocks you a bit sideways if you do a great gig uh it's just an immense feeling you know and you do feel uh adored Mm -hmm. and you have to remind yourself that that is uh temporary Mm. um and you know and something of an illusion but uh feeling that feeling of being adored and then maybe waking up the next day and you know not not through alcohol or whatever feeling you know down but just feeling down because you're a human being on a bad day that roller coaster is kind of very difficult to Mm. to deal with um and i mean there are gigs that i've done where it's taken me four or five days to even feel normal to sort of come down from it yeah uh because it's just such a uh it's just so intense and it's and it's so uh it just feels so huge and you just have all these feelings and bass lines and (laughs) and things just like banging through your brain and you just can't <laughs> can't work out but also it's you just want to go back it's like being addicted mm. to some to, to some kind of amazing drug you just want to go back and get back into that and that's really what the come down is the come down is you knowing that you might never feel like that again and is it the connection to the crowd that's the addiction or is it the 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 venue the music it's everything really everything. I mean everything it, you can't again you can't manufacture it so it's just and it's quite unpredictable sometimes it it it's at a venue on a night you're not expecting it and um, and things just come together I think everyone who you don't have to be a DJ to kind of know that that there's a certain mystery in a way to that night out thing that mm. sometimes you can hear more or less the same music played by the same dj but in a different venue and it doesn't work mm. or the same music played by a different dj etc all those different permutations but it sometimes it just doesn't necessarily all fall together are there any examples you can that spring to mind of those you know huge gigs that when it all just falls together falls in place um yeah i mean i, I did a a party for the um manchester international festival last year uh where i'd kind of been involved with the festival for quite a long period being involved in the new order shows Mm. and then the closing party and i had just i think i had an hour and a half and i just kind of put everything that i had into that hour and a half um and yeah it, uh, it was kind of total joy in the room and um and so partly that i guess you know looking back was partly because 
it was the culmination of all those weeks and months that I'd been working on the festival, kind of just feeling like I can let loose now. Mm. But also the audience kind of just coming and 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 uh, be, being in the right place and and uh, you know in a, and it, it sold out like three months earlier, mm. so people had been anticipating and and that had probably meant that people came ready yeah. for a big night yeah um and also you know it was a it, it's a an audience i kind of feel like even if i didn't know everyone in the room which obviously i didn't is a kind of an audience i feel like i would know yeah um so um yes yeah, so that was that was that was an amazing night but you know this what uh, what happens as now is that about one out of every five is amazing hmm. and at the end of those nights i kind of like I'm, I'm being slightly pessimistic by nature the each at the end of every night i'm like oh, i don't know if it'll ever be as good as that <laughs> and then i have like one or two not so good nights and i'm i'm beginning to worry yeah you know should i hang up my headphones is it all over and then you know fourth or fifth one down the line is another great one <laughs> yeah. i'm like i can do this it's great yeah i did a, i did a night with seth troxler who obviously appears in the book because i sell all my records to him mm. and i dj'd with him and that was just brilliant and somebody sent me a video of me and him djing and you and i just looked like like the happiest man <laughs> in the world <laughs> and um you know and that was that was only a couple of years ago and so you know, it's uh, just enough of those happen for mm. me to for me to just like. Was it was it the same? You know, back in the late eighties too. That you know, some weeks would be good, some weeks would be bad. Well, not not bad, but not as good. No, I think most weeks were good. But what happened? Well, I think that there then was that um, I I I wasn't expecting so much really. Yeah, I think uh, you know I wasn't my 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 expectations of what could be achieved on a on a great night you know for me it was uh at, at the hacienda in the early days it was just a question of i think i always knew I c it could be better that was the thing yeah you're always striving to yeah yeah so one of the reasons i think why that notion that what we were doing was changing the world in the hacienda hadn't didn't occur to me till fortunately until <laughs> quite late and, and didn't intimidate me mm. and throw me off course was because i was always very focused on what did i need to do or specifically what records did i need to buy in yeah. order to make the following week better yeah. and that was all i was thinking about yeah. so at the end of every thursday night i'd be like okay i need to go to the record shop and uh, you know i need to refresh that part of my playlist or mm. i need to maybe dump that and start playing that or maybe turn that over and play the dub and then on a saturday i'd be the same mm. and that's kind of my little world that was what i was contributing i wasn't thinking about you know is the word madchester the perfect <laughs> way of describing what we were doing or am i playing acid house yeah. or should i get a record deal yeah or I need to send out a press release, <laughs> which I never did. <laughs> I, no, I didn't think any of those. I just think I need to go to Eastern Bloc and buy some new records. Yeah. That's all I thought about. You mentioned, uh, you're talking back to those early days of DJ, and you said earlier that it, you found it, you took to it quite easily. 
Um, but why do you think that is that? I know we've touched a bit on it in in the sense that it's the kind of share the enthusiasm for the music and sharing. But why do you think that you it came easily that came easily to you and you were able just to you know you you just went went for it and and carried on. I think it was because I'd listened to so much music already in my life by that point mm. and it meant a lot to me and I was passionate about certain kinds of music and I guess I, I, I kind of I, I was just enjoying you know when I say playing loud music to you know your favorite music that was the other thing it was always my favorite music mm. so I, I took to it because I didn't have to fake it or you got to play what you want research it I've always played what I wanted and luckily you know the hacienda that was all that they wanted they didn't you know again in the book i say in all the years i was involved in the hacienda there was you know almost no conversations about what music should i be playing Hmm. um and so i just played what i wanted and i think deep down that that is what um i think an audience picks up on that the weird thing about DJing is that although you're playing other people's records in some way you are communicating something of yourself in what you play Mm. and if you believe in the music then the audience will believe in you and uh, luckily I was DJing at a time when that made perfect sense now DJing is surrounded by a whole load of other issues about, you know, money and and mm. genres and management and, you know, the DJ magazine Top 100 and all that kind of stuff, which just complicates things. Yeah, it's interesting you say about genres because one thing that stands out as well, but, you know, the kind of the introduction of Acid House and stuff into the house, you know, it wasn't like there was a day when it was, you stopped playing what you were playing before and then you started playing house or, or you know, whatever. Yeah. It was just gradually sort of melded into the set wasn't it because of you of songs that you liked and uh, tunes that you liked yeah that was one of the, that was one of the, one of the things that was uh when i sat down to write the book I, I kind of had about four or five things that i really wanted to kind of get across on that kind of um music history level hmm. um uh, that idea that um there was some kind of year zero where you know uh, everyone in Manchester or the Hacienda or me, we were all kind of struggling to do anything or make sense of music, or we didn't know what to play, and no one was coming in the Hacienda. And then, you know, one day something a bit acidy popped up, and someone took a pill, and everything changed. Mm. Um, I don't know if that's ho- what people think, but occasionally, you know, it that 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 is the way that it's portrayed. And and it's not at all how I remember it. So mm. that idea of evolution of the of the nights and the music and especially the music, um, because obviously there was a the, the the music evolved slower than the drug thing. The mm. drug thing once ecstasy had begun in one corner of the club, which is what I talk about in the book. Yeah, it wasn't long before it was through the club, but the music by that time had already moved on. Uh, but it, you know, uh, but it had evolved over, you know, a two or three year period, hmm. um, and then, you know, so by the middle of '88, you kind of had the synergy of of the drug having arrived and quickly taken over, with us having arrived at a point musically that was very different to where we were two years earlier. So those two things kind of combined and created hmm. a sense of revolution. And it clearly changed the 
the vibe within the club, didn't it? But the 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 introduction of drugs. Yeah, it did. But I mean, I I, I uh, it wasn't like uh, the vibe was poor and then it was amazing. Mm. I mean, it it was more the intensity. I mean, the hacienda. As I said before, you know, I look back quite fondly over the years before it exploded, and and uh, and I don't do that because I kind of romanticise. Oh, the club was empty and all that kind of stuff because it wasn't. Hmm. I remember it as being, you know, uh, by uh, the middle of '87, end of '87, it was a place, a good place to go. You know, it was it it was a great night out. We'd got the or basically what had happened in that period is we brought in the audience who would turn out to be the best audience to appreciate the revolution. Hmm. So we kind of set all the ducks in a row uh, by uh, the end of 87 into 88 so that when the music and the drugs and all that happened, it was the perfect audience to to absolutely get what was happening. But I think in the, in my own, um, in, in the story, I think something which I, I, I need to try and work out is how did I go from uh, Sonic Youth to bleepy Detroit <laughs> yes. techno yeah. in in three or four years? Is it partly, do you think, that it was new and it was exciting and it was up and coming as we talked about earlier definitely yeah and 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 also because by that time um i mean when sonic you slept on my floor i actually was i actually dj'd on on that night at the gig that they played earlier in the evening and i was played mostly hip-hop i think because i remember having a conversation with them um in in my flat afterwards Hmm. about hip-hop because they were quite obviously they were from new york so they had stories to tell and 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 um yeah but um but after after that point the dj just became more important to me and in that search for uh, eastern block every every week for the perfect records then obviously things that were different and things that were exciting were things at the top of the list of what i needed to get and um so it was about yeah you're right it was about that it's new and it's exciting and and also just that idea that it's not being played on daytime radio yeah. and 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 just uh, uh different and a bit adventurous but you um actually left didn't you the hacienda in 1990 about pretty much the it was it was still going pretty well at that, that point. That was wasn't when it? I f- yeah when I the uh, first yeah it it it's the 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 chronology is um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit hazy a bit hazy. <laughs> I don't I don't I, I wouldn't recommend anyone tries to do a, a, a mastermind specialist <laughs> subject on my life at the hacienda no. because even I'm not quite sure how many times I left, how many times <laughs> I was sacked, how many times I was reinstated. Um, so, but I you s- wanted to do your own thing at that point, didn't you? I think, <laughs> yeah, you- that particular one. Yeah, uh, I left of my own accord. Yes, yeah, uh, which was October 1990 to do my own thing, and it was partly because it had just got so big. I didn't mm. feel like it could get any bigger at the hacienda. Uh, 
and I wanted to, you know, I, 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 it was four and a half years of the Thursdays that I'd done, and every week, and that's you know quite, uh, quite a long stretch really, and also, uh, you know, it had built up into being huge. You know, it was like the best night out in Britain according to the NME mm. by the middle of 1990. Um, but there was, at the same time, I was aware of some of the background stuff that was happening at the club, problems with security, mm-hmm. uh, a slight loss of direction. Uh, again, that at the very moment that the finger was being pointed, everyone was saying, you're amazing, was like the one point where the empire started to crumble. Mm. Um, and obviously the police were on our backs at that point as well. Uh, there were problems with gangsters. So uh, my, my own little patch was probably as good as it was going to get. Mm. And all that other stuff seemed to me to be negative influence, which I needed to remove myself from. And looking back, do you, still, do you feel that was the... Uh... It was the right thing to do, although then uh, six months later they invited me back because <laughs> yeah. I went off and did my own thing and it went really well. <laughs> so then Too they invited well. me back and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, having made a big point of resigning, I then went back. But in the book, I actually say I don't think that was the right thing to do. Hmm. Um, going back? Going back that time. but then I got, So I left again. And then I went back a third time <laughs> in 96, and that was the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, like I say, um, I'd, I'd probably get about f- five points in Mastermind Specialist <laughs> Subject <laughs> on my own <laughs> toings and froings at Hacienda. But, you know, that, that was, um, it all worked for me. Uh, doing my own thing was really important, mm. you know, because in that Hacienda chaos, there was so much that I couldn't control and it was impacting on what I was doing. You know, the door policy, the police. It was a pretty scary stu- place at times, wasn't it? I yeah. mean, I know you you say you had a gun. I mean, the boardwalk was as scary, but yeah. at least it was, I at least I kind of knew I could trace back what was going on hmm. and I could have an effect on it. Yeah, because you had some pretty hairy moments at the boardwalk too, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, I had. St- uh, in fact, there was a couple of hairy moments that I haven't even put in the book. Mm. Too hairy? No, not too hairy. <laughs> but just like it becomes, it, it just becomes <laughs> too much. Yeah. <laughs> and also in the book, you know, because uh, yeah, by like '95, that scene had got so big that the Hacienda and the Boardwalk and other clubs around town were being targeted by gangsters. There were protection rackets or guns coming into the club. There were various gangs battling out for control of the doors, control of the drugs trade, and, um, and like I say, guns and violence. And there were people, there was you know one particular year, probably 95, I think, where there were, um, the violence was, was also out on the streets, mm. you know, and there was a, like an epidemic of ram raiding of shops, and there was a load of shootings in Moss Side and elsewhere. So... It all did, you know, it did really seriously get out of hand. And being at the boardwalk two nights a week was pretty much on the front line of all that activity. And the police knew that. And the police, uh, as I say in the book, the police would send us faxes. (laughs) They'd send in undercover policemen and they'd also send us faxes warning Mm. us of, you know, known gangsters frequenting the club. And, you know, and then, um, you know, the doorman had, 
arrive one Friday and they go, oh, it's going to be a bit of a tough night because so-and-so's come out of strange ways tonight. And and the word is he's uh, inviting everyone down to the boardwalk tonight <laughs> for a good time. And I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> Can we stop this somehow? <laughs> he doesn't sound like my kind of a guy. <laughs> and, but he did, you know, that would happen, all that kind of stuff would happen. But it was a violent time, wasn't it? There was real violence. Yeah, and in the book, it? I kind of, I do, in the, and obviously I'd, uh, uh, in the book, I talk about how difficult that time was. You know, I feel like that's probably one of the most honest parts of the book. Mm where I actually talk about arriving home at two o'clock, um, you know, at night. And uh, just if I'd, you know, if I'd believed in God, I'd have got down on my knees and thanked him because, uh, you know, it was, it, it, it could be pretty dangerous. Um and uh, at that point, I just I had my son. I had, I had my daughter in 1996. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so there were also, I kind of had, you know, the kids needing me to be safe. So in the book, I'm kind of, you know, I talk about that, all that stuff bearing down on me. You know, and, and yeah, I kind of, I, I kind of try to push on through. You know, I mean, I'm not not like a kind of some, you know, hard, hard guy, you know, in any way. But there was some some part of me that uh, just managed to just deal with it. Mm. You know, deal with the death threats and the violence. I mean, the stuff that I don't talk about in the book is times when, when the threats became, you know, pretty real, you know, and... Uh, you know, there was kind of one night I was DJing. I had uh, a guy just leant over and stubbed his cigarette out on my face. Uh, there was another guy who punched my two front teeth out in the club um, while I was DJing, more or less. Um, you know, all all that happening. Uh, These know, weren't random things, were they? They, were, hmm? they weren't random events. No, they weren't random events. And... You know, kids at home, and you know, all, and you know, but there wasn't a moment where I thought I'm going to walk away from this. Mm. Um, you know, I just tried to apply a bit of determination and a bit of imagination, and you know, and there's sort of, um, I, I mean, I kind of make light of it in some ways in the book. You know, and I talk about. <laughs> funny little moments when I knew if I knew that the um, undercover police were in the boardwalk, yeah, uh, I'd because they'd send us faxes saying that the music we were playing was encouraging gangsters and violence. <laughs> and so, uh, if I knew there were undercover police, I'd start playing Upside Down by Diana Ross <laughs> just to kind of mess with their minds so they'd go home, go back to the station. <laughs> open their note. I imagine them going back to the station, opening up their notebooks, and and you know licking their pencil like they do in the films <laughs> to write about their undercover work in the <laughs> boardwalk. And they'd be like, "The DJ played Diana Ross upside down," <laughs> and not quite, and not you know, because obviously that is not the kind of music that anyone could accuse no. us of of playing to attract gangsters. Did that gangster, you know, gang activity? 
come to a close then sort of naturally or well i closed one of the nights i was doing at the boardwalk because of it because of that yeah because two nights a week was too much friday and saturday was too much so the saturday finished um and the friday which was a little bit more more in control uh security wise i continued to do that uh and that was you know and, and i didn't walk away from that until um Ninety nine, and I was uh, that by that time, you know, it was the, there was talk of the club being sold, the venue being sold, and uh, also I had my I had my first book out, yeah. so I kind of it was the right time to move move on. But the gang activity did fall away generally in in town by the end of the nineties because mm. the council kind of got a grip on various things. And what um, you mentioned there, the first book, because um, this is your fifth book now, isn't it? So what sort of read them all i have read i've read manchester england i've got my little list here actually read a list tell me i've read not abba the real story of the 70s i haven't read life after dark oh you should so uh, that's on my list and i think i've read adventures on the wheels of steel well life after dark is the one is the one with the most critically acclaimed on amazon okay <laughs> other outlets are available. Uh, yeah, other less tax <laughs> just just one outlets. question actually before we talk about the first book is when how long have we talked by the way? Oh, I can check. Hold on. Oh my, we've talked for uh, an hour and a half. I know we have. I didn't realise that. <laughs> okay, I'll keep and we're still on chapter four <laughs> yeah. of thirty-four. All right, I'll 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 shift you along then. Um, when the hacienda closed, finally, did yep. you what did you feel? How did you feel about that when it finally um, closed its doors? I wasn't. I, I wasn't as. Uh, yeah, I wasn't kind of as knocked for six as some people, and I, partly because it wasn't. It was kind of unexpected, but I had just so much else going on. You know, I kind of. I, I just managed to deal with it, and I also took. Um, I, I, I took note of what what uh, Tony Wilson was saying at the time, which he seemed really resigned to it closing mm. and also not at all interested in it being reopened as any kind of a museum mm. um, or, you know, any kind of tourist attraction, even though, you know, there was talk of that kind of thing happening. Uh, he seemed ready to walk away, which, you know, knowing what I know about him and the club, uh, you know, is kind of understandable. Um, and... Uh, and retrospectively, I think it closing um, just made the club more legendary. You know, it's like Jimi Hendrix dying hmm. or James Dean dying in a car crash. I often thought if Robert De Niro, bless him, had died 20 years ago, hmm. he'd he would be an absolute legend After i mean meat. he still is but before you know meet the parents yeah. and meet the fuckers Bad and all grandpa that. or whatever yeah. it is it's not right and is it people would have just thought, oh yeah, yeah all those amazing film taxi drivers <laughs> i'm being flippant yes. but you know what i mean i know what you mean so it burned brightly so, and then dies, yeah. and that's i mean and also burning brightly for uh 15 years yeah and um having that legacy uh, I mean, we talked about it earlier that idea of of sowing seeds. You know, having in a way the job of the club was done. Hmm. 
and uh and the idea that it would be open now uh fills me with horror you know um i mean i've no idea um what what the club would be playing i mean there were some pretty bad nights near the end anyway you know um and if if it had got caught up in the whole manchester nostalgia retro thing um then that would have really ruined the reputation of the club i think mm. um because although we've been talking for an hour and a half about the 1980s <laughs> i mean i think the, the when i mentioned before about the you know the several things that i wanted to do in the book before i started writing it one mm. of them was to really push away the nostalgic element to the story mm. because it doesn't interest me at all and although as a kind of you know as a person interested in ideas and history and where did we get to and how did this happen and all that although i'm interested in the past celebrating it documenting it talking about it living in the past is just the worst thing hmm. culturally and psychologically and um i read uh somewhere about uh depression and the connection between people with severe depression and people who feel like life was better in the past very very strongly connected mm. which you can understand you know if you if if you feel like you're everything good or most things that were good about your life have, have happened and that your life is over and and that you've had good things which have disappeared or being snatched away from you and you've got not much to look forward to then you can understand how that's connected to depression and and so there's a psychological aspect to nostalgia mm. and there's a kind of cultural and social one and it also is political i mean in a way the whole brexit vote was nostalgia it mm. was a it was people with a rose tinted idea of the part we want to go back to this we want to go back to that and um so i uh i wanted to try and yeah come to terms with my past and and how that connects with that manchester music nostalgia thing mm. um and you know i'm not dismissive in the book of people who you know are and it amazes me and it pleases me that there are people student age people who mm. phone me up and say you know i'm fascinated by the whole manchester thing can i interview you for my dissertation or whatever and i uh, amazing that they're interested but mm. and i and i actually you know the 40 and 50 year olds who i know who want to go out and hear that music and relive it at reunions and so on i understand that it's great they have great night a great mm. night out um but just from me it from my own point of view i just feel like it's uh baggage which weighs very heavily and mm. i don't want to be i never wanted to be you know somewhere and you know somebody points over to where i'm sat and says to their friend he used to be big in the 80s you know i don't 
I mean, that might be people's perception. Who knows? Mm. But from my own point of view, I want to. F- I want to feel like there's still things I can do. Yeah. I want to be involved, and also because I don't. I, I think feel like I we, my generation, owe it to, the younger generations, not just in Manchester but generally to open doors, mm. and to s- and to encourage what we talked about earlier. Make your own life. Make your own culture, and 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 th- that's what we did. We did that partly by denying what had gone before, and sometimes that's what you have to do. So, in the book, there's, you know, in the sort of last third of the book, some of that is to, is dealing with, yeah, how how do you deal with that past, you know, and and how do you how do you escape getting sucked into that nostalgia, and how do you keep reinvigorating and re-energizing your interest in stuff that's happening now mm. are you still excited by new music and new new yeah, stuff yeah i mean now? i'm still i'm excited by new ideas mm. and um and um and uh I, I, I am slightly try and avoid that kind of 56 year old <laughs> man name dropping bands new bands yeah yeah sure what which, what, which I, I find, what ideas I find are you interested really, in at uh, the moment then I mean, there are, there are bands. There are bands that I like and who I name because people will phone me up, believe it or not, and <laughs> say, you know, people in elsewhere in the media will phone. What's the happening band in Manchester today? Right. They believe that I know. <laughs> and I mean, I do. You know, I, I still my my favourite p- kinds of venues are, you know, small venues, uh, you know, uh, soup kitchen night and day, yeah. those kind of venues. Two or three bands playing, and I still go to those. And I have my opinions and I have my favourite bands because when people ask me that, I want to say something that I mean, you know. Yeah. So for a, a long a, a long while, sort of uh, probably 10 years ago or, or so, I was like championing everything, everything. Mm. And then I had like a little, I only have one basically. Uh, and then I championed pins for a while. <coughs> um uh which fever i really like now but like i say i find it um, i think it's you can't on the one hand say to the younger generation make your own culture and then on the other hand <coughs> make you p- try and put your own judgment and agenda and onto what they're onto what they're doing and saying hmm. <coughs> so um um Yes, I'm. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I think <coughs> I'm going to steal your water. Yeah, help yourself. Um, so I think am I d- am I doing more talking than you? Yes, which is how it should be. I wasn't sure of the format. <laughs> yeah. So what have you been doing, guy? <laughs> um, <laughs> Not much. <laughs> so yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of I have got to the point where. I mean, in the book, I talk about going to Paris for a while to live. And partly that was just to experience a whole load of new things. Um, and, you know, and, and to feel like there was a whole sea of possibilities to adventure in. Um, and, you know, I still feel that, obviously, about Manchester and about my life. There's more people I want to interview. Um, you know, so there's still... A, a lot of stuff to do i also think that um in terms of ideas uh 
I think we, I think I want to become more intellectual. I think I'm, it <laughs> sounds mental, <laughs> but I do. Uh, because I t- I'm really frustrated about how instant and banal and infantile our public discourse is mm. now. And uh, we're just missing all the big connections between what's gone on in the past and now or between different things that are happening internationally or think people aren't connecting with you know politicians there's all kinds of strange ideas that are gaining gaining currency for no reason other than you know uh people want to be deluded about stuff so uh i i i just i feel like i need to intervene a little bit more in that not because i necessarily think i can do anything to stem the tide mm. of moronic stuff happening but because um i'm like the kid i was when i was starting the fanzine i wanted to express myself in the way that i wanted to and um and i'm still that person and music has been a great way to express that and so is writing Mm. um but you know i'm i'm kind of open to whatever might happen next. I've actually just now formed a band. You have? Or a li- I am about to perform live. I'm performing live in Italy in October. Hopefully. What's the band called? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to let you know. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't want to... No, so there's still... I want to do some live performance. What basically. do you play? Oh, uh, I, I uh, press buttons. Right. Uh, it's a kind of art installation slash performance art slash music thing. It's not really what your average 56-year-old should be up to. <laughs> um, but I've been offered the gig and I want to do it. And um, also, uh, I, I, I'm, uh, maybe I'll make a film or something. I don't know. I don't want to feel like... A, it's over. Mm. Now I've written my autobiography. The thing is, like, <laughs> it feels like... Yeah. Uh, you bookended obi- your life. Autobiography slash obituary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't want to feel that, no. funnily enough. No. Um, and also, yeah, because there's still stuff churning around in my head 24-7 and and finding ways of expressing that and or, or finding ways of, of just feeding it. I mean, I, I, it's not like I don't. I want it. I don't want all those ideas to go away. Just finally, then, is that the whole close-up interviews? Is that part of this whole thing too? About you know, you were saying about the the sort of the throwaway nature of a lot mm. of the discourse. Is that partly why you want to do that to have these sort of longer conversations with people and and share it with an audience too? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, the, the, we barely talked about the close-up interviews, but obviously, it's an important part of what I do, an important mm. part of the book. And it's, you know, and, and to get, and also the thing is that I've kind of created those events, you know, much the same as putting on bands in the 80s, putting on DJs in the 90s, and now yeah. I put on these onstage interviews. So it's still me wanting to do something in the public domain in a venue with an audience. It's me sat down with people who interest me hmm. and uh, hopefully interest an audience. And as you say, try and do it in an unmediated way. So it's not, you know, edited for radio. It's not on TV with, you know, uh, 
put through some kind of prism or agenda which isn't going to work and isn't going to be enlightening. Just them trusting me, me trusting them and having a deep conversation with them. Mm. And I love it, absolutely love doing them. And, um, you know, they kind of make a little bit of money, so they kind of, you know, it works on that level. Um, But in terms of being, in terms of satisfying my, you know, thirst for ideas and finding out things and connecting with people and sharing stuff and and meeting interesting people and and just like being able to, you know, be in, be there and talking to them is just, is brilliant. You know, I mean, I think uh, interviewing John Lydon in front mm. of six hundred people at Albert Hall. And interest interviewing Nile Rogers, uh, which went on for like two hours. <laughs> he got his guitar out and started playing <laughs> all these amazing riffs and explaining how Incredible. he'd written all these songs. Those, I mean, events like that are um, a bigger buzz than DJing at Spike Island. Absolutely, DJing at Spike Island was just like a pain in the ass. <laughs> And and interviewing Nile Rogers was like a religious experience, mm. and that's just the way it is, you know. And that's why, you know, I didn't call my book "I DJ'd at Spike Island" mm. the Manchester story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's more layers than that. Yeah, I hope so. And you mentioned just finally, then you 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 have had some. Stop really saying finally. Oh, that's, no, my that's the second time <laughs> I've done that. Isn't <laughs> if, it? If you want any any advice on on interviewing, don't keep oh, yeah, saying. Oh yeah, we haven't finally. even come on to the interviewing advice yet, have we? But this is final final question. You've already had you've had some big names on, haven't you? Like you mentioned John Lydon and now Rogers. Who's your on on your hit list of who's the ultimate two two or three names that you'd love to? Um, Martin Scorsese, because I think he's uh, he's been incredibly influential, obviously. Uh, but also he's interested in music I mm. love the way he uses music in his film you know and, and going right back to Mean Streets mm. which is almost like the first pop video compilation mm. if, you, if you watch that and the way that things are choreographed with the music and how loud music is in the mix yeah. Um, so I think we'd get on basically <laughs> and um, so I think he's, he's kind of like I mean there's a lot there's maybe a few other people um, but you know he's uh, obviously Bowie would have been amazing mm. um, but uh, I think M- Martin Scorsese is number one on my list at the moment mm. um, so you know if he if he's listening <laughs> yeah. email me <laughs> or just follow me on Twitter and, yeah. and d- DM me Martin Marty that's what his friends <laughs> Marty, call him yeah, Marty right. so I'll start calling him Marty Yeah. and I'm just going to throw this out to you Marty <laughs> call me <laughs> we could we could do it any any venue you want in in Manchester, New York. No, uh, no, I want to Manchester. Bring him over here. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you don't want to have to go to well, New York. It's only about four hundred pound return. <laughs> I'll pay his airfare. <laughs> what an offer! What an offer! He can't refuse. <laughs> thank you, guy. That's the perfect ending, Dave. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>